Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. So, um, a quick note on the new member class. I think the screen said July 19th, and Zach, I think you said the 18th. The date is the 19th, which is the Saturday. Um, and it's uh, Saturday morning, like 9 to 1-ish. And uh, we're, we're doing it different because we've had in the past like four consecutive weeks, and that was uh, uh, a necessary thing. But now that we have a lot of the content online, we're able to move it uh, you know, to, to a one-day format, which is why we need you to sign up as soon as possible so we can get the videos to you that we'd like you to watch in advance. So um, that's the 19th, July 19th, but don't wait until the day before to, to sign up. Like I said, August 19th. What's the matter with you people? No, I'm kidding. Okay. So uh, September 12th, uh, go to the class. I'm kidding. All right. August 19th. August 19th. All right. I tried to help out and I made it worse. So uh, it's good to see you all. Um, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here. And if I haven't met you yet, I hope to have a chance to do so after the service. Um, you're joining us in the, a series through the book of Luke. And right now we're in Luke chapter 22. And this section of the gospel is Holy Week. We're approaching the end of Holy Week, which leads up to the Good Friday crucifixion of Christ. And so where we are in the story, just a few days prior to where the story is that we're at today, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on what we know, as, know it as Palm Sunday. So Jesus came into Jerusalem with great fanfare and celebration, and the crowds were, you know, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and Jesus has, was very popular, and people were excited to see him. Um, and so this, this entrance on uh, Palm Sunday provides a dramatic backdrop for the events that took place on Good Friday. Because by the time we get to Good Friday, all that popularity will have evaporated because Jesus uh, had conflicts and disputes with the Jewish leaders and they ended up uh, essentially forming, you know, like they, they smeared his name and they opposed him in such a way that the crowds turned against him a lot of that was driven by the fact that he predicted the destruction of the temple. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus enjoyed the popular support of all the crowds of the people. And the disciples got to bask in that popularity of Jesus. But now things have changed as we're getting towards the, uh, the crucifixion of Christ. And we see people have been turning away from Jesus, including two of his own disciples. And that's who we're going to look at today. So today, we're on the, the story where we're at the eve of the crucifixion, and the night that we're in, the night where Jesus served Passover to his disciples, um, we looked at that two weeks ago. This is a very, very long night, and a lot of things happen this night that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. This, this, uh, this long night will be followed by a series of escalating events that include Judas's betrayal of Christ and Peter's denial of Christ. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We're, there's a lot of text in this uh, chapter. We're going to zero in on Judas and Peter. These guys failed Jesus when the pressure was on. And the story is about 
what they did and how they responded to it. One of them had a dead conscience, and one of them had a conscience that was still alive, though wounded by his sin. So let's dig in. Luke 22 is where we are. We're in Luke 22. The scene is the Passover. That's where we're going to start. The scene of the Passover dinner. Jesus is sitting and talking with his disciples. Uh, The meaning of the bread and the cup, which is the body and blood. And then Jesus continues with this teaching. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined... But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So here's, woe to that man, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begun to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. We'll pause here. At this point, nobody knew who it was except for Jesus. Only Jesus knew who would betray him. And so, naturally, they're like, I mean, there's a dozen guys sitting around there like, uh, is it you? Uh, are you going to, like, how have you been, you know, you kind of had that thing with Jesus. You got upset that one time. Is it you? And they're, they're kind of questioning one another and debating who is it that's going to end up betraying Jesus. And it seems as though that questioning is what prompted the dispute over who was the greatest. And that's what we looked at last week. If you remember that, there was an argument about which of them was the greatest. And that conversation was in the context of Jesus saying, one of you will betray me. So Jesus taught them, as we saw last week, that greatness in the kingdom of God is all about humility and service. And so as Jesus is talking about greatness and leadership and service and humility, Jesus turns and he's got a word directly for Peter. He's going to have a word for Peter. Now let's jump down to verse 31. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter's parents named him Simon. He grew up probably with the name Simon, and it was Jesus that changed his name to Peter. So Jesus now goes, he now is calling Peter by the name he grew up with. He's calling him Simon, which is what he would have known as a boy. And so the name itself, the, the, the calling him Simon, it might indicate a regression in Peter's life. This is speculative, but it might indicate some regression in Peter's life. But repeating the name, it shows an affection for him. The repetition is like a Simon, Simon. There's, a, there's an appealing about it. There's a, a, a sign of, of love and affection for Peter in repeating the name. Now, you, you may have noticed I circled uh, a, a few words here. He said, behold, Satan demanded to have you. The word you here is Plural. So he says Simon's name, but he said you, 
plural. So he's talking to all of them. He'd be like, if there's a guy here, hey, Frank, Frank, Satan demanded to have all of you. It's like that. It's like he's talking about everybody, but he's directing the comment to Simon. All right? Same here. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, the second and the next phrase, it changes to the singular. So now Jesus is saying, saying something to Peter himself. But I have prayed for you. That's singular. That your faith, Peter, may not fail. And when you, Peter, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So we already know Satan is on the scene. And we know this because earlier in the chapter, in verse 3, we're told that Satan entered into Judas. So Satan is on the scene, and Jesus was aware of this. He, he knew that Satan was directly present in some way, manifesting himself through uh, Judas. But Satan already had his guy, right? I mean, he had Judas. He had his, the guy that would betray Jesus, but Satan wanted more. So somehow... Jesus in the spirit is able to discern Satan's desire. There's some, some interaction between Christ and Satan where Jesus reported to the disciples something they would not have audibly heard, but Jesus knew that Satan was there at the table demanding to sift the disciples, to have them and to sift them like wheat, which is basically I'm going to shake them until, they are, uh, until their, their faith is rattled. It's a, it's a desire to destroy these men. So Satan is, is demanding that, and he's demanding all the disciples. Satan demanded to have all of you disciples to sift you like wheat. But Peter, I have prayed for you personally that your faith will not fail. So he's directing comments to Peter, telling him, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. So that's singular, and Jesus is directing these words, calling him by his old name, repeating the words, Simon, Simon, showing some affection for him, some intimacy with him. And this is important because Jesus will soon be ascending to the Father. Jesus will be taken away physically from their presence, and all of Peter's boldness that we know him for, you know, Peter, that... He's, uh, he's outspoken. He doesn't, he doesn't hesitate to speak his mind. He's a man that seems to have a lot of courage, but that courage was always in the context of being with Jesus, who could bail him out of any problems he got into. But Jesus is about to ascend to the Father. And so Peter will now be, uh, be separated from his master, from his Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter is going to be taking on a leadership role amongst the disciples. And so there, Peter's courage... And Peter's strength is about to be tested. And Satan knows that, and Satan wants to take advantage of that. So Jesus had formerly called him Peter. Now, that's Petros is the, the word in Greek, which means rock. You know, petrified is something that's like made into a rock. He's, it's a, the word means strong, like a rock. So Peter was the leader. He was the guy that had been looked to to provide leadership amongst the disciples. And now Peter is going to have to step up whenever Jesus departs from them. And so his strength and courage is about to be tested because Jesus is going to be arrested and then crucified. And then we're going to get to see 
And under these circumstances, what is Peter made of? So Jesus called him Simon in this instance, which might indicate that the old man, the old you, Peter, is about to be manifest. The guy you used to be, we're about to see him again. And so Jesus is indicating Satan knows your weakness. Satan has targeted you, Peter. I've, but I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Now, Peter, he, he's incredulous, right? I mean, he's very confident. He's like, Lord, what are you talking about? Like, like I'm, not me. Not, a lot of these other guys, yeah, they may fall away, but, but not me. You know, I'm the rock, remember? Dwayne Johnson, right here. I'm your guy, Jesus. I will never fail you. They can send me to prison, I'm with you. They can send me to the cross, I'm with you, Jesus. You, will, you can count on me. That is Peter's fatal mistake. Because he, he indicated there where he's let his guard down. Peter's essentially saying, that'll never happen to me. And as we know in Scripture, pride comes before the fall. This is Peter's pride. Last week, we looked at Jesus' teaching that greatness in the kingdom of God is humility, right? The, the humble man is the one that can be great in the kingdom of God because he is the one who is going to rely on the Lord's strength and not his own. But we see here Peter overconfidently boasting in his own strength. He's saying, I'm the guy for you, Jesus. I will never let you down. That will never happen to me. And so Jesus responds by predicting Peter. This night, before the rooster crows in the morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Peter didn't believe it. This prediction and this denial is going to become a key part of Peter's story. I mean, we, what we know of Peter, the, the lore that surrounds the apostle Peter is that he's the guy that denied that he knew Jesus three times. We know that story. And Jesus is about to humble him greatly, and that humiliation is going to make him useful. Now, verse 32, he says, I have prayed for you. So Jesus is praying here. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when, not if, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is saying, the denial is going to happen. He predicted it. Jesus knew it was going to happen, but that's not permanent. The denial is not permanent. You're going to turn again, like turning. You're, it's, it's, the, it's like a repentance. You will repent of that action. And when you do, when you turn again back to where you should be, under those circumstances, after you turn, Peter, here's your job. Strengthen your brother's. He's going to assume a leadership role. He's going to have to lead them. And he is going to be the leader that was the only one that denied Christ three times. God is going to turn his, his, uh, his sin, his weakness, into something that will be used. He's, he will be humbled by that sin. And God will use that to, to, uh, to help him as a leader. Notice that Jesus doesn't pray that Peter would not sin. He knew he would. So Jesus does not pray, hey, Peter, I pray that, you're not, that you would not sin. Or Jesus predicted the sin. He knew he would do it. 
but he prayed that his faith would not fail. So Peter's going to screw up. Jesus prays that Peter will keep trusting in Jesus despite these failures. Now, like Peter, a lot of people overestimate themselves. A lot of people overestimate their own goodness, and they underestimate what they're capable of. And by that, I mean they underestimate the sort of sin or wickedness that they are capable of. You ever thought about history, you know, these awful times in history when people just did horrible things, and, and have, you, have you ever put yourself in that, in that position thinking, I would never do that? I would never sell out my family for my own safety. I would never do that. Have you ever done that before? It's like you're watching a movie or you're thinking about something that's happened in history and just thinking, like, I would never do that. That's what Peter did here. Peter thought he was incapable of, of denying Christ. He thought he was incapable of, of not being faithful to Jesus. And that overconfidence was his undoing. His pride came before his own fall. But a lot of people think things like, that could never happen to me. I would never do that because I'm a good person. I'm a good moral person. And a lot of times, even as people are doing horrible things, they, they justify it by making the horrible thing they're doing right in their mind in some way. But we are capable of far worse things than we imagine. We don't account sufficiently for the evil that we're, that we're capable of. That doesn't mean we... We actually commit the evil that we're capable of, but it does mean that it's possible and that any one of us could fall into any sin. And it is by the grace of God, it is, it is God's mercy on us that, that we do not fall into those sins. You know, uh, some of you saw, I posted this on uh, Facebook. I had my truck broken into the other night. Uh, well, I say broken into, that, that's that's not exactly accurate. Like there were, there were kids, we have the security video. These kids were like standing on the hood of my truck with a big rock, like throwing it. And they, it took, they, were, they were idiots. They took them like 15 minutes because they weren't strong enough to actually break the windshield. So they just stood there. Nobody was doing anything. And these four kids um, standing on the hood of my truck, like throwing this big rock until finally they cracked my windshield to be able to, to, to bust, it, bust into my truck. And like when I first heard of this, I mean, I was so furious and my, the first thought that ran through my mind is like, boy, what I wouldn't give to have, to have caught them in the act. And then the thought came to me right after that is like, thank God that I didn't catch them in the act because I probably would have done something that I would have regretted. You know, maybe I'd be a, in county lockup right now if I would have caught them because I'm a sinful man, because I, I, I'm capable of, of, of evil things. And so are you. Any of us is capable of, of wicked things. Given the right circumstances, or wrong circumstances, as it were, but given under particular circumstances, we can do far worse than we would ever imagine us being capable of. We have to, we have to recognize that it is, it, is, it is the grace of God that is at work in the world that preserves us and that keeps us from doing things far worse than what we've done. But a lot of people who think they're strong... They, they let their guard down, and they end up putting themselves in compromising situations. So I know a guy um, who cheated on his wife. And, of course, he thought, that could never happen to me. Nobody plans on it. Nobody, nobody thinks that they're the guy that's like, yeah, I'll probably cheat on my wife, you know, some, one of these days, if we're given the right opportunity. Everybody thinks, no, I would never do that. 
And this guy, of course, like, he didn't, he didn't think it was possible. And so, like, he had, because it wasn't really possible, then he was, he was free to kind of, you know, play around with sin. He flirt with this woman at work because he knew it wouldn't lead to anything. Of course, it wouldn't lead to anything because he's not the kind of man that would ever cheat on his wife. So, he could flirt with her a little, you know, no harm, no foul. Uh, he enjoyed attention from her. You know, he got somewhat familiar and uh, private messaging her, emails and texts and that sort of thing. Things got more and more familiar, but you know, it's, it's innocent friendship. It wouldn't lead to anything, but as it got more and more personal, uh, the temptation grew, but he thought, you know, I'm, I'm a strong man. I'm, I've, I've got self-control. This is not going to happen. And so the attention that he got from her caught him in a moment of vulnerability, and he fell into sin. And so did she. I'm sure she, she probably was telling herself her own, her own lies about her own strength. But it was an innocent friendship until it wasn't, and he ended up sleeping with her. And so whenever I, whenever I sat in front of him, and he was confessing this to me, he hadn't told anyone yet. He, he was like a ghost. It was, I, I was just like, this man does not look like the man that I know. It's like, he, he is, he's an empty shell of a man. And f- of course, he said what I, what I figured he would say. I didn't think it would happen to me. I never thought, I never thought I would be this guy. And that could be any one of us who is overconfident about our own self-control, who's overconfident about our sanctification or holiness. And so we let our guard down thinking that we'll be fine and we flirt around the edges of sin. We, we dabble thinking, oh, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And we, we let our guard down and then things escalate. The thing is, is that big sins usually begin by dabbling in small sins. They don't start big. Most of the time, it's not like you're just out of the blue, out of, out of nowhere, there's this massive sin that you do that was not preceded by a long series of small compromises. We think we're strong enough to keep it from escalating, but you're not. None of us are. I'm not strong enough to keep sin from escalating. That's what sin does. Sin is ambitious. Sin wants to grow. Sin wants more and more. Sin wants to take more than it has. Sin is greedy. It wants to escalate. It always escalates. No sin is content remaining small. And so Peter had to learn this the hard way. And so did Judas. Judas did the same, but his story is different. So let's look at his story. Verse 47. Let's skip down to verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around, uh, those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Luke is being polite. He's not telling us who it is, but John is not so polite. 
In John's gospel, he tells us it was Peter. <laughs> and, I'm, and I can imagine, you know, if you're Peter, you're thinking like, Jesus just said, I'm going to betray him, right? Or I'm going to deny him. Well, I'll prove him wrong right here and now. This will be the one time Jesus was wrong. Jesus said I would deny him, but no, I'll show Jesus I'm willing to fight. I'm willing to do anything, so I'm going to draw my sword, and I'm going to go to war against one of these soldiers to protect Jesus. So we bad aim, cuts off his ear. I doubt that's what he was going for. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. All right. Remember, verse 3, the beginning of the chapter, Satan entered into Judas. Judas became like a puppet, this instrument in Satan's hand, and Satan was able to manipulate and control Judas's actions, not in such a way that Judas was, was not responsible. Judas was not a helpless victim. Judas allowed this to happen through a series of compromises throughout his, his time with Jesus where he left himself vulnerable to this possession of Satan. Now, the Jewish authorities, they didn't want to arrest Jesus in daylight, so Judas came and identified Jesus in the dark, away from the crowds that might stir up a commotion at the arrest of Jesus. And so he gave them a signal. He said, hey, they're like, hey, well, which one? It's going to be dark there. There's going to be a bunch of dudes there. Hey, Judas, which one is going to be the guy we need to arrest? And so Judas did what was customary with a disciple with his teacher. The disciples, uh, would, when they're with their teacher, they would greet their teacher with a, with a kiss. And Judas like, well, I'll just do what I always do. The man that I kiss, is the, is, that's, that's the man. That's the guy you go for. So he had to look Jesus in the eye and kiss him as his act of betrayal. That's high-handed betrayal. That is high-handed treachery. And I can imagine, like, what kind of resentment must he have been nurturing for a long time against Jesus to get to the point where his conscience could be so deadened that he would betray the Lord with a kiss? And the betrayal had to have been calculated because he told the, the guards what he would do. They, the, the, the Jewish authorities had paid him money already. So the great irony here is that Judas betrayed with an act that would otherwise be interpreted as, a, as an act of love and loyalty. For me, I would much rather deal with a hardened, blaspheming, God-hating atheist than someone like Judas. Judas was apostate, meaning that he was, he was one of Jesus' inner circle. He was an inside man, a man who was recognized as one of Jesus' followers, one of the 12 disciples. The word apostate means abandoning or renouncing one's previously held religious beliefs. And Jesus has some very strong words about the sin of Judas. Listen to what he says. This is Mark 14, verse 21. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What happens a lot of times is people love the benefits of the Christian faith. People grew up around it. 
They have fond memories of mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and cousins or whoever. They have fond memories of church. They have, they, there's something nostalgic about the songs, about the, about the experience. The, 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 a building itself can have pleasant memories for somebody. So they enjoy the benefits of the Christian faith, but not the Christian faith that produced the benefits. And so what they want is to cling to the, the good things that they liked while rejecting the very core, the very thing that produced all of those good things that they like. So they end up staying in church a lot of times. They end up working, though, within the church to change it to something that fits their preferences and suits their priorities. And that is their kiss. That is, it's like they're, they're rejecting Jesus. They're, they're betraying Jesus, but they're doing so while wearing the label and and going through some of the rituals and the behaviors that, that people do, but, but their heart's not there. They're betraying him. They're, it's, it's, a, it's a suit of clothes that they're wearing. They're just going through a set of actions. And so their kiss is a claim to love Jesus, a claim to love the church while working to undermine true Christianity. And Satan would much rather work with insiders like that he can do a lot more damage with somebody like that than some Richard Dawkins atheist. Some guy that's just like, I hate Christianity, I hate Christians, I hate everything about it. We know to tune him out. We know it's like, oh, I ignore that guy. But whenever it's somebody that works from within, that person can do a lot of damage. And that's Judas. That's his kiss. His, his kiss is, I'm going to act like I love you. I'm going to act like I'm committed to you, like I'm loyal to you, but that very act is actually my means of betrayal. For some reason, people who apostatize, they often can be quite outspoken about it. They, they become more evangelistic <laughs> about their apostasy than they ever were in their supposed faith that they had prior. But that's the betrayal of Judas. All right, let's, uh, let's keep moving. Now let's look at the, the denial itself of Peter, verse 54. Then they seized him, seized Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also were one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, he'd had time to think about it. Still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. He had an accent. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, just as Jesus said it would. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. 
for whatever reason, Peter was unwilling to admit to anybody that he even knew Jesus. He wouldn't have been under threat of being arrested. If the guards wanted to arrest all the disciples, they could have done so whenever he was in the garden. But he didn't nevertheless want to be associated with Jesus, such that he was, he was willing, even just didn't want to be ostracized or didn't want to be pointed out. Now, obviously from what Jesus is reported to have done here, Jesus turned and looked at him, Peter's denials happened at least within eyesight of Jesus, if not within earshot of Jesus. And so there was a, you know, a courtyard which this, some of the trials and things that were Jesus' interactions with uh, Herod and Pilate going on, this is in a somewhat contained area to where it's open air and you can hear and you can see and, you know, it's, uh, Jesus would have been dealing with whatever was happening with uh, the people that were questioning him. And yet... In the midst of all of Jesus' own problems taking place, when he hears the rooster, he knows, at the very least, okay, the rooster, he turns and he catches Peter's eye, and he looks at Peter. I know what you did. That's when Peter remembered not only the prediction, but also his own insistence, I would never do that. Jesus, I'm willing to go to jail for you. I'm willing to die for you, Jesus. I would never turn against you. And so Peter, all of that, all of those memories flooded back of what Jesus said, not years earlier, but just a few hours earlier when they were at dinner, earlier that night. So he was swearing up and down that he would never do this. And so now, all in a moment, all of this hit Peter at once. He failed. He had denied Christ and he knew it. And not only that, Jesus knew it. And not only that, Peter knew that Jesus knew it. Now, in light of this, let's go back and look at the statement that Jesus made at the Passover dinner. What did Satan want to do? He wanted to sift all the disciples like wheat. He wanted to take them out. And it's evident now that Peter was the one that fell prey to that temptation. And here's what... Jesus said to Peter. We looked at this earlier. Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now he's talking about all the disciples there, remember. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. On the eve of his execution, when Jesus knew that he was facing the most horrific pain that he could possibly endure, the Son of God, the perfect, righteous, innocent Lamb of God being slain for the sin of the world, when the wrath of God would be poured out on him at the cross, he's praying for his friend. Peter, I've prayed for you because I don't want you to fall prey to what Satan wants Now, notice that Jesus already knew that Peter would fail, and so what he's doing is praying about the way Peter would respond to the failure. I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail, that your faith may not fail. Jesus did not pray that Peter would not fail because he knew he would. He predicted it. 
But Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. And that's a big difference. And Jesus anticipated the answer to his own prayer because he says, and when, not if, when you have turned again, which means when you have repented, strengthen your brothers. They're going to need you. When you have repented, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. So after Peter's colossal failure, Jesus still wants to use him in his kingdom. And of course, we do know from the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament that Peter indeed, he repented and he was reconciled to Christ. Jesus forgave him and Peter was a leader in the early church. Now, if we were to judge by the actions of the men alone from the outside, Peter and Judas look somewhat, they've got some things in common, right? Both of them turned against Jesus. They stabbed a friend in the back. Prior to that, during Jesus' ministry, both of them had witnessed miracles. They'd both seen Jesus feed 5,000. They'd both seen Jesus walk on water. They'd both seen the blind see and the, the deaf hear and the lame walk again. They'd both heard Jesus' teaching. Both men sat at Jesus' table just a few hours earlier, hearing about the meaning of the cross. But despite these similarities, these two men are not the same, and the difference boils down to this prayer and the faith that Jesus prayed for Peter to have. Jesus did not pray this for Judas because Judas was not a man of faith. Judas was not a follower. Judas never loved Jesus, truly. Jesus was never truly committed to Jesus, and he left himself open for Satan to exploit. And the kiss was evidence that Judas's conscience was dead. He had to look Christ in the face and kiss him, knowing that that kiss would not only get him arrested, but ultimately would get him killed, because that's why they wanted to arrest him in the first place, was to kill him. So Jesus knew from the start who Judas was, and yet in God's providence, he chose to number Judas among the 12 for his own purpose. John chapter 6, verse 70 and 71, this is, this is reported from earlier, early in Jesus' ministry. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, one of the 12 who was going to betray him. So Jesus knew back at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 6, this guy was a devil. Now, Peter, by contrast, he was a true disciple. Peter loved Jesus. He was committed to Jesus. He was loyal, and yet he was weak. And God used his failure and overconfident pride for his own glory. And the evidence of, of Peter's genuine faith were, were, the, were his tears. We see Judas's hard-hearted rebellion in his, uh, in his kiss. And we see the genuineness of Peter's faith in his tears. Because when Jesus turned and looked at him, he went out and wept bitterly. It broke him. It broke his heart. He knew immediately what he'd done. It crushed him. He had, he had denied his Lord. And that showed that his conscience was alive. He was not spiritually dead. He had not killed his conscience the way Judas had. His conscience was alive. And so Peter needed to be humbled by God to be useful to God, and that's what God did for him. 
So genuine repentance is marked by grief, or grief over sin. That's what Peter did. You don't have any sense at all that Peter enjoyed this, or that he He's like, I'm glad I got that out of my system. Jesus needed, he had it coming. No, Peter, like, he was crushed. He hated his sin. He hated the fact that he had sinned against his Lord, that he had denied Jesus. And so he wept bitterly. That's the way you respond to sin. You respond to sin by realizing not only what have I done, but also who have I done it against? And every sin, every, every sin is a sin ultimately against God who has created us and who has given us His Word and given us His law and expects us to, to, to be obedient to Him. And Peter hated that sin. True repentance is marked by grief because of who we've sinned against. And so Jesus prayed for Peter. He prayed that his faith would be preserved through that failure. And that's how we respond to any failure. That's exactly what God did. And that's exactly what God does for us too. By God's grace, we're not Judas. I pray none of us would be apostate. But every one of us is going to fail the Lord. Every one of us is going to, we're sinful. We live in a sinful world. We, we will let him down. We're going to screw up. And so the way that we respond to those moments, whenever we do it, whether they're big or small, is it's, all, it's always the same, no matter the degree of the sin. We respond by grief, tears, not, not necessarily physical tears every time, but there's, there is a grief in your heart. What have I done? I've sinned against the Lord. That's, that's an indicator of a tender conscience. A conscience that doesn't want to sin against your Lord. What the Bible teaches is the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Every true Christian, God will see us through to the end. Just as Jesus prayed for Peter and Jesus' prayer for Peter was effective to preserve his faith through the denial and the repentance, his, he prays for us the same way. That's the doctrine of perseverance. And I would say most people say, well, what if I'm not truly saved? Well, what do I know then? I'm like, if you're worried about that, that's a good sign that you're truly saved. Because only people that are truly saved worry about whether or not they're truly saved. Philippians 1 verse 6. I'll give you two scriptures to demonstrate this. Philippians 1 6, Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you that's your conversion, your salvation. He began that good work in you, will, it's a promise, bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus start, uh, finishes what he starts. He started that work in you, he's going to finish it. And we have a promise, Philippians 1, 6, that he will do so. And I believe that God preserves us because Jesus prays for us. It might be strange to think of Jesus praying for us, he's God, but just stay with me. The, the word intercession is used, and that's a, it's a mediation. So it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's like a prayer, although it may be different than the way we might pray. But Jesus intercedes for us, which is analogous to what Jesus did for Peter here. Jesus prayed for Peter, and Jesus now, you know, in glory, he intercedes for us. So this, this is from Romans 8. 
what I want to point out to you here is uh, in, in verse 34, but the rest of the text is just so good, I'm going to read it all. Paul is saying, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn you, Christian? Who would condemn you for your failures, the things that you've screwed up, which you've done and you know it, or that you will do, and God already knows it, just like he knew Peter's denial? Who will condemn you for that? Who's going to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That is who is praying for you. He is your intercessor. He is your mediator. He is the one that is standing in your place and he is holding your soul fixed and firm. It is not going to let you go. This is how he finishes what he started in you. He is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's who we are. Even if... You are like Peter. Even if there is some denial, some major failure, some adultery that is yet in your future, pray that it will not be so. But even if it is, Christ is interceding for you that your faith will not fail. That means that when that moment happens, what do you do about it? You don't turn around, you, or you, you don't just say, well, I guess this is who I am now. I guess I've just given, I might as well give up on this Christianity thing. No, that's your test. That's your moment of humiliation that God is doing for your good and for his glory. And that's when you say, I'm going to turn again. I'm going to turn and I'm going to repent. I'm going to grieve this sin. I'm not going to allow it to define me or control me. I want my faith, which is outside of me, my faith, which is cast upon someone better than me, which is my Lord Christ. I'm going to believe in him, and that is going to be the sustaining grace through that difficulty. So he goes on, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what we have. That is our promise. That's Romans 8. You could spend the next year reading that chapter every day, and you'll never get to the end of the riches that are contained there. But that is what Christ has done for us, and that is what he is doing. He is interceding for us in such a way that he will never let us go. So friends, this is what Jesus is praying for us. That doesn't mean you'll never fail, because we will. I hate to say it, but we're going to fail. And there may be colossal failures in your future. Pray that it doesn't happen. Pray that you don't compromise in small ways now that will lead to big compromises later. Pray that God will protect you from it, that you don't let your guard down. But the moment that the conviction happens when you realize that you're in sin, pray that your faith will not fail, which means you respond the way Peter responded. You grieve the sin. You hate the sin. And you turn again. 
You keep believing and hoping and trusting in him, the one who never fails. He's the one who never lets us down. He's the one who will never betray us, who will never deny us. When we sin, the moment of recognition, we have to turn. Maybe you are here, maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you're here and you don't want to be because there is some weight of sin hanging around your neck and you have not dealt with it. Well, let this moment be the moment where Jesus turns and looks at you. He sees exactly what you've done. And in his eyes is not hatred. His eyes is an appeal. Turn. Grieve the sin. Turn. Receive the grace of God. Receive his forgiveness. Because that's what he purchased. How odd would it be if on the night of the crucifixion, which is the very means that God used to secure our salvation, if Jesus had something other than the salvation of his disciples on his mind? Of course he's going to pray for Peter. That's why he's going to the cross. That's why he's here at all. It is for the sake of his people so that he can rescue them. So trust him. Pray that we can do what Peter did. And this this repentance is not white-knuckled human effort, but rather it is fueled by the faith that Jesus is praying for. And this cycle of repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, That's the wheels of the gospel turning in our soul from now until the end of our lives. That is just the cycle of how we grow. That's sanctification. It's empowered by the Spirit, but is sustained by the intercession of Christ. God will do it. He began the good work in you, and He'll complete it. Trust Him for that. We've got a feast of grace prepared for us. Let's pray and come to the table. Our Father God, we are... Grateful for your grace in our lives, we thank you, Jesus, that you are interceding for us right now. Lord, by your spirit, there are people here that need to respond in some way to the message. If it is to be encouraged of the grace of God that Jesus is interceding for us, I pray, Lord, you will encourage them. If it is those who are in despair who are questioning their salvation, I pray that you will reassure them. If it is someone who is in sin, may the eyes of Christ turn and look at them and may they realize it and may that cause them to grieve their sin and turn. And we thank you, Jesus, for your matchless, endless, perfect, infinite grace that is so merciful and so kind and so tender with us even though we can be so obstinate. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy in my own life, for the mercy of God that is at work in every one of us here. None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. None of us have made it all the way, Lord. We are all in process. Help us to remember that, Lord, as we strive day by day. Purify us, sanctify us. Thank you, Jesus. And now we ask you to feed us and nourish us as we come to the table. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.